I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 to 12. And I'm not going to be able to do that. Greg, are you in here? Hey, um, are you able to put the clock on those TVs? That's fine. Otherwise, um, we might not get out of here till like 2 or 3 o'clock. So that would be helpful to have that. <laughs> oh, you know what? Hey, wait, I'm wearing a watch. I'm wearing a watch. <laughs> All right, you're up here now. <laughs> Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 together. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles. Instead, we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would open our eyes, our ears, our minds, and our hearts. God, help us to receive from you today what you brought us here to proclaim to us. Help us to see in your word truths that we can live by. Help us to grow in our faith and grow in our, our trust in you. And also, Lord, help us to grow in obedience so that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this sermon today called Walk Worthy, and that's also the, the series title. The series title came from this passage. The, the idea of, of walking worthy or living worthy before God is something that's prominent in, in the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. But what does it mean to walk worthy? How would, you, how would we define walking worthy? Well, that's what I hope to accomplish today. How do we as ambassadors of Christ, because that's what we are, we've, we've talked about that recently, we are ambassadors. We are sent out in his authority with a specific mission and a specific purpose to accomplish his will. 
And so if we are ambassadors of Christ and we are called to walk worthy of him, what does that look like? Well, I want to start actually at the end of that passage, and then we'll go back to the beginning and we'll work through the passage verse by verse. If you have the handout in front of you and care to take notes today, the first set of blanks looks like this. Understand the big picture. Understand the big picture. The first thing we need to do is to, to, to understand our motivation, to understand the source of, of what it looks like to walk worthy of God. And so I want to look at verse 12, where we ended in that passage. In verse 12, it says, walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk worthy of God. Just stop there for a moment. Walk worthy of God. If you have even the slightest understanding of who God is and what he is like, your first reaction should be, that's absolutely impossible. I cannot walk worthy of God. If there's one thing I am, it is unworthy of who he is. And so to be called to walk worthy of God, we need to step back and we need to see the big picture. Your life, the reason that you were created was, is, is for this right here, what we see in verse 12. The reason that you exist is because God calls you into his own kingdom and into his glory. That's why you're here. Maybe nobody ever told you that. Maybe you've never thought of that yourself. Maybe you don't even agree with that now. But the reason that you exist, this is from, from God himself, from his own word. The reason that you exist is to be a part of his eternal kingdom. We walk around with much smaller visions for our lives. We walk around with a much smaller purpose for why we are here. Very, very few, if any of us, walk around consistently thinking, hey, I'm here because I was created to be a part of an, an eternal kingdom that is ruled and, and, and created by God to display his glory. We walk around and we think, I exist to feed into my own happiness. Or perhaps our better, more noble intentions, I exist to serve others and to help other, the people around me experience a better life. I exist for my family, or I exist for my career, or I exist for my earthly goals. We, we don't have in mind the big picture. That is a very small piece of the puzzle of our lives. So what we need to do first and foremost is we need to step back and we need to see the big picture. God has called you to walk worthy of himself because he calls you into his kingdom and glory. You are called to participate in the glory of an infinite, eternal God. If that is the reason for your existence, that should deeply impact the way you live your life. 
If you understand the big picture of why God created you and what he's calling you to, that should deeply impact the way you live day to day. That should impact the way you view yourself. That should impact the way you view others. In other words, you should strive to walk worthy. Let me say it this way. Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins getting ready to make another hopefully deep playoff run. And I've been a hockey fan all my life. I've played hockey. I've coached hockey. I've watched hockey. I love hockey. Let's imagine I get a call today from the general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins. And he's like, hey, we're getting ready to make this playoff run. And we just want to make sure we got everything uh, as prepared as we can be. And we need you to be on standby in case we need a defenseman to step in on short notice. And I'd just be like, I knew it. I knew it was only a matter of time. They were going to call me. Right? Now, now, all of a sudden, because I, I've been in, invited into, I've been called to another purpose, let's say a, a greater purpose than what I had been doing previously, I'm going to start to live differently. I'm going to start eating a little less Taco Bell and Little Debbie's. And I'm going to, get the, going to get the skates out and make sure that they're sharp. And I'm going to start practicing. And every day I'm going to get up and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I'm ready, to make sure that I'm living up to the standard uh, that is set by that team. I'm going to, in a sense, do my best to walk worthy. It's going to impact the way I think. It's going to impact the things that I say no to and the things that I say yes to. It's going to drive and motivate me in how I live my life. How much more so should this calling to participate in God's kingdom, for this calling to be partakers of his glory, motivate us to walk worthy? How much more should that influence us in the, in, in the decisions that we make? Shouldn't that come into play into the things that we say no to and the things that we say yes to? Shouldn't that come into play into how we spend our time? Shouldn't that come into play into how we manage the thoughts inside of our heads and the relationships that we have with other people? Of course it should. And that's what it means to walk worthy. To orient our lives around this bigger picture that God has called us to something greater, that he has called us to be a part of his kingdom. Okay, so let's get real specific now. I want to give you, <clears throat> actually, I don't even know how many, how many ever blanks there are left on your paper, on your handout. I'm going to give you five things. All right. I'm going to give you five things that, that we find in this text that, that seem to provide a bit of a job description or somewhat of, an assemblance of marching orders of what it means to walk worthy. Number one, these aren't numbered, I'm just numbering them now. Be undeterred. Next thing you'll see on your handout is that to walk worthy, we must be undeterred. To be undeterred is to follow the example set by Paul. This letter, if you haven't been here, 1 Thessalonians, is written by the Apostle Paul. He was uh, really the preeminent church planter of the first century. He was largely responsible 
uh, not, not solely responsible, but largely responsible for the gospel going out to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. This, this message of the gospel that began in Israel amongst the Jewish people is now spreading to other peoples throughout the known world. And Paul has gone, he has planted a church in a place called Thessalonica, and he has written this letter to the Thessalonian believers as a way to encourage them and to stay in contact with him. Or, yes, and so he encourages them to be undeterred. Verse 1, for you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened. That's, by the way, that's not the, the pizza shop. In, in the Trona Heights. This was another city in the Roman Empire. As we were outrageously treated in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. So this is what's happening. As, as Paul is going about his missionary work of traveling from city to city, planting churches, preaching the gospel, gathering those who respond to the gospel, and establishing churches among them, he's constantly being persecuted. And I mean severely persecuted. He's, he's being physically harmed. His life is in danger. He is, he's being threatened with, with death and imprisonment. And he says, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. What was the effect that that persecution had on Paul and his ministry associates? It's that they were undeterred. And not only were they undeterred, they were actually emboldened by God to speak the message to even more places. Typically, when you're doing something that people want to kill you for, you might stop and think, maybe I should stop doing this. That was not the effect that this had on Paul. It actually, it actually confirmed to him that he was doing the right thing, and by that he was emboldened to go and to speak the gospel of God to more people. He tells us, this won't be on the screen, I just want to read it for you. He tells us of, of this pattern of mistreatment that he experiences and the effect that it has on his ministry in 2 Corinthians. I'll read 2 Corinthians starting in verse 24. This is Paul's resume. He says, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Why, why did they do this thing, 40 lashes minus one? And why didn't they just say 39 lashes? Well, sometimes they do. The, the idea behind the 40 lashes minus one was that 40 could probably kill you. And that's not to say that 39 never did kill anybody because I'm sure that it did. But the idea was that we're going to get as close to, we're going to bring you as close to death as we possibly can and then let you go. He says five times. I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys I faced dangers from rivers 
dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things. There is daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. In Damascus, a ruler under King Eratos guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me, so I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. This is how Paul lived his life. Constantly in danger. Sometimes hungry, thirsty, out in the open sea, a day and a night in the open sea, just trying to keep his head above water and survive. Being snuck out of cities in fear for his life, and yet he was undeterred. He says earlier in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, he says, now we have this treasure in clay jars. The clay jars he's referring to are the, 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 the fragility of our human bodies so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted but not abandoned. We are struck down but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. And then listen to these final couple of verses I want to read from this passage. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The perspective that Paul has... In seeing the bigger picture allows him to see his tribulations, his trials, his persecutions, his sufferings, all as part of the means through which God is growing his church. This is what he says back in, in 1 Thessalonians. He says, for you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result How does Paul measure success in one city to the next? The results. He does not measure success by his personal comfort. 
He does not measure success by how welcomed he is by the city. He measures his success by whether or not the gospel has changed lives. And in that, he is absolutely undeterred in all of his trials. In order to walk worthy of God, we must walk undeterred. Now, few, few of us will ever be tasked, hopefully some of us, but few of us will ever be tasked with going to places where the gospel is not yet known and experiencing the type of, of resistance and persecution that Paul himself did. Again, hopefully some of us will do just that. But most of us, that's not what God has called us to. Instead, what he has called us to is perhaps hostile, hostile co-workers or hostile family members or hostile community members within the lives that we already live as we attempt to take the gospel to the people around us we may experience a small portion of the suffering that Paul experienced. Perhaps the majority of our suffering will come through other means. Physical illness, the loss of relationships, the loss of loved ones. In all of these things, we must be undeterred. We cannot allow anything that we face in this life, no matter how difficult, cause us to turn back from walking worthy of the God who has saved us and called us into his kingdom. And furthermore, we must, we must be determined to share the gospel as we go about our lives, as we go about living out life here in this temporary earthly existence we must be undeterred in our spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's what we're called to that's the reason why we are still here we must grow some thick skin we're comparatively speaking we're soft not all of us I look around this room, I see some people who have been strengthened by the Holy Spirit as they go through trials. But comparatively speaking, when I think of what Paul has gone through, when I think of how Jesus was treated among men, I hardly feel like a man at all. We're soft. We've, we, we do not have the grit and the resolve that so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone on before us have had to display. God, help us that we may be undeterred in all of our persecutions and in all of our sufferings, whether physical or spiritual. Next, you see on the handout, <clears throat> not only must we be undeterred, we must be pure in motives. We must be pure in motives. Paul goes on to say in verse 3, he says, For our exhortation didn't come from error or, or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, 
just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. You know, the context that Paul goes into in, in, first century, in the first century Roman Empire specifically, it was not at all uncommon for itinerant speakers to travel from city to city to go around and to declare some, oftentimes a, a religious message sometimes claiming to have new religious revelation, other, other times political messages, or, or other times just traveling from city to city speaking to entertain. And so the, what Paul came in to, to do was not all that unusual. It wasn't like everybody in town would have been like, oh, somebody, somebody traveled here from another city to tell us about some unique religious message. That was nothing new to them. But how Paul, Paul, wants to, Paul wants to make this distinction between himself and these itinerant speakers because often those people spoke out of impure motives. They did so to, to make a living. They did so to gain influence. They did so to perhaps gain pleasure. They would come in to town and seek to entertain or to captivate an audience. And they didn't care if they were being deceptive. They didn't care if what they were saying was true. What All they cared about were, were people entranced by it, were people excited to hear them speak. If so, they would be rewarded. They would gain money. They would gain influence. They would gain worldly pleasure. And when all of that ran out, they'd travel to the next city and do the same. This was nothing new. Paul says, we didn't come to you like this. We didn't, we didn't come to you out of error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, we came to you approved by God and trusted with the gospel. And we spoke not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. Faithful gospel proclamation always aims to please God, not man. Think about that. As you share the gospel with people in your life, undoubtedly, undoubtedly you'll be doing so for their good. Undoubtedly you'll be doing so hoping that they respond positively to the gospel and receive salvation. That's not wrong. Of course we want that. But ultimately, our gospel proclamation, if it is to be faithful, if it is to be pure, it must be to first and foremost please God. And, and what I, is, is what I'm saying and is what I'm doing pleasing to him. If you're driven by the desire to please men, if you're driven by the desire to please the people that you are speaking to, whether it's in a context like this or whether it's one-on-one -on -one with coworkers or family members or friends or neighbors, if you're driven by the desire to please them, ultimately you're, you're opening up and subjecting your motives to impurity. 
You may fall into one of the three traps that Paul says come along with impure motives. He says, he mentions flattering speech, greedy motives, and seeking glory from people. Does that sound familiar to you? Can you think of people who act and live according to these three rules? Use flattering speech, have greedy motives, and seek glory from people. I can, I can think of politicians. I can think of entertainers. I can think of you know, Hollywood elites. This is, this is how they live their lives. Entertain the people. Flatter them if possible. Make lots of money off of that. And seek glory from men. That's what they do. That's how they live their lives. And for that reason, you can't trust them. You know that. You've experienced that. You cannot trust people with these motives. Be wary of those who use flattering speech. Even in the pulpits of the church. Be wary of so-called gospel preachers who all they want to do is talk about how great you are and how much potential you have and flatter you and build you up. Be aware of that. It's likely that behind that are also greedy motives and a desire to receive glory from people. But Paul does not come to the Thessalonians like that. He says, we never used flattering speech, verse 5, as you know. Or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or for others. To walk worthy, we must be pure in our motives. Next, if you have your hand out in front of you still, the next one is to live sacrificially. We must live sacrificially. Paul sets the example in this. This is, how, this is how he describes it to the Thessalonians. He says in verse 7, Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. What Paul's, although we could have been a burden as, as Christ's apostles, he, Paul had earned his stripes. He, he had earned a be careful how to say that. Um, he, he had risen to a position within the church where everybody in the church could see his value as a minister of the gospel. He could have come into Thessalonica with that attitude. I'm an apostle. I'm Paul. I just planted a church in Philippi and I planted a church before that and I planted a church before that and I planted a church before that and once I'm done here I'm going to plant a church and then I'm going to plant another this is Paul we're talking about he could have come in with his attitude of you're maybe not not even I don't want to I don't want to go too far he, and, and say he could have come in with an arrogant attitude but even it wouldn't have been arrogance to lay on them the burden of his ministry Specifically, he's, he's, he's referring to how he acted among them financially. The, Paul was able to go city to city because Christians, churches, were supporting his ministry. They were giving to the ministry of the apostles so that the gospel could go forth. 
much like we do today. We send people out. We say, we'll support you. We'll get behind you. We'll pray for you. We'll give to you. We'll, we'll encourage you. We'll, we'll come and, 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 and build you up. We'll come alongside you. This was, this was Paul's position. He says, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. The imagery that he uses here is a little bit complex, but I think it's worth trying to grasp. He, when he says a nurse, he's, the, the word here is he's referring to uh, professional wet nurses. In, in that culture, as there still are today in some, some places and in some cultures, there are, are women who literally make a living by nursing other people's babies. And so if you have the means to do so, but I mean, those of you who have nursed children, I've not done that, uh, thank God. <laughs> and I, I just remember as, as our girls were young, I was just thanking God that I did not have the ability to do that. Kim would get up in the middle of the night, and I'm like, I, don't, I can't help you here. I don't know what to do. I guess I'll just keep sleeping. One of us should get some sleep, right? But those of you who have nursed babies, you know it's rather inconvenient. It's difficult. And I'm not saying there's no upside to it, but it's, it's work. It's a lot of work. It's a sacrifice. And so those who had the means would hire someone else to nurse their children, and the image that Paul uses here is of a professional wet nurse, of, of, of a woman who would nurse other people's babies. But he says, we were gentle among you as a nurse, a professional wet nurse, not as she nurses someone else's babies. Because, I mean, we assume that the majority of these women are uh, have pure motives and they're good natured and they take good care of the babies. But there is a difference between caring for someone else's child and caring for your own child. And Paul says, we didn't come in among you as somebody who was just hired to be here. We didn't come in among you as somebody who was fulfilling a professional obligation. We came in among you as a nurse nurtures not someone else's children, but her own children. Someone who is fully invested in the life that she is nurturing. That's the image that Paul speaks of. We could have been a burden as Christ's apostles. Instead, we were gentle among you. As a nurse nurses her own children. As a nursing mother who has nursed other children cares for her own. He says, verse 8, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. They refused, Paul and those who were traveling with him refused to allow the financial burden of, of caring for them fall upon the people that they were there to reach. And instead, they worked night and day to support themselves. Now, this isn't what Paul did all of the time. He, as we already mentioned, was financially supported by the church in order to do this ministry. But there were times when Paul saw it best 
to not lean so heavily on that financial support, but to, to, allow, uh, um, to allow that burden not to fall on the people that he's ministering to, but to receive it upon himself. That's what it meant for Paul to live sacrificially, to come in with such love and with such compassion for the Thessalonians, treating them as his own children, working day and night so that that burden wouldn't fall on them. He says, and in that way, we preached God's gospel to you. In order to walk worthy, we, our lives as Christians ought to be lives that are marked with sacrifice. That doesn't mean that we never receive anything from anybody else. That was not Paul's, that's not the case that Paul's even making here. But when necessary, and when it seems appropriate, we must be willing to go without something so that others might receive the gospel. And so that our, if, if we are the ones taking that gospel to them so that our motives might be shown as pure. Must live sacrificially. So, looking at the big picture here of what it means to walk worthy of God who has called us into his kingdom and his glory, we must be undeterred we must be pure in motives. We must live sacrificially. The next, the second to the last thing on the handout is that we must live with integrity. We must live with integrity. In verse 10, Paul goes on to say, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. Now, integrity can mean a lot of things. I, I tried to choose a word that perhaps um, would serve as an umbrella over several terms here. Uh, just because it was too long. Well, maybe it wasn't too long. I could have done it. Um, I could have said, we must live devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly. And that's what I mean. When you, when you think of integrity, whatever it is that you think of, know that in this case, what I mean to say is that we must live devoutly, we must live righteously, and we must live blamelessly in order that we might Take the gospel to more people. Paul calls on two witnesses. It was traditional within Jewish culture that any matter of significance needed to be established by two witnesses. And Paul says, we have two witnesses. He says, you are witnesses, the Thessalonians. You are witnesses of how we conducted ourselves among you. And then he says, there's another witness and, and so is God. You are witnesses and so is God. So there's your two witnesses. Why is that significant? Because the Thessalonians could testify to what they had seen. The Thessalonians could testify to how the, uh, Paul and, and the other uh, Christians who came to Thessalonica behaved outwardly. And, and then there is a witness to how they lived inwardly. The Thessalonians could testify to what was seen, and God could testify to what wasn't seen. Those are the two witnesses. Whether, whether seen or unseen, they lived lives of integrity. They were devout, righteous, and blameless. That's how they conducted themselves. Now, that doesn't mean they were perfect. 
We know that. We know from Paul's own admission in other places in his letters that he did not, he did not um, claim to be perfect. He did not claim to be without sin, nor do any of the other apostles. John would say, uh, if we claim to have no sin, we are liars. So we know that they weren't perfect. Nonetheless, they lived lives of integrity. Then finally, the last thing on the handout is this. In order to walk worthy, we must call others to higher living. In order to walk worthy of God, in order to walk worthy of this gospel, in order to walk worthy of the kingdom and the glory that he invites us into, we must call others to higher living. Verse 11, he says, As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I love that Paul, in previous verses, uses the image of a mother. He compares himself to a gentle nursing mother. That's the kind of compassion that they came with. That's the level of nurture that they, they were committed to. And now he calls on the idea of being a father. Like a father with his own children. We encouraged, comforted, and implored you. We implored each one of you to walk worthy of God. That's not a bad model for what it should look like to be a Christian father. We encourage, we comfort, but we also implore. Implore obviously has the weight of, of a, a father's desire to see his children live up to a standard. <clears throat> In this case, the standard is set by the kingdom and the glory of God. It's not enough to encourage someone to do that. We must implore them. We must be willing. We, we, we must be willing to, at times, be tough with one another. And to, to, to look a brother or sister in Christ in the eye and say, how you are living is not worthy of the kingdom of God. You, you must do better. You must set a higher standard for how you live your life. Like a father, encourage, comfort, and implore. It's on us to call each other. It's, it's, it's on us to, to build up and encourage each other to live to a higher standard because of the gospel. It's up to us to... to to, as, as Proverbs 17 says, iron sharpens, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's, it's up to us to come alongside of and sharpen and, 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 and take each other up another notch. To set an example for each other in pursuing God and the glory of his gospel. That's what it means to walk worthy. To not be content with our level of commitment to walking worthy in these areas that we've looked at today, but to be willing to push one another. And like a loving father, 
And, and few of us probably could say we, we, we have a real solid example of a father who encouraged, comforted, and yet implored. Most of us probably had one or the other. We had fathers who were full of, in, full of comfort, but they didn't push us to be better. Or we had fathers who really lacked comfort, but they really knew how to push us to be better. Paul says that we were among you like, like a father who, who did both who encouraged, comforted, and yet implored. We must call others to a higher living. Now, all of this is done in the context of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when we, when we get into sermons like this where we're just really looking at a short passage of Scripture, I don't want to narrow down our focus uh, too narrowly so that we lose sight of the gospel. The gospel tells us that, that we are righteous not because we live up to these standards. The gospel tells us that we're acceptable before God not because we do these things well. These are the things that we strive for because of the gospel. And the gospel tells us that we are acceptable before God by one way and one way only through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that the only thing that truly makes us worthy of God's kingdom and of glory is never our own behavior, but instead the righteousness of Christ, which is gifted to us through the gift of salvation, which we receive by believing in Christ. And so let me just end with that and make clear that you, brothers and sisters, having placed your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus has made you worthy. Jesus has made you fit for his kingdom. Now, in light of that incredible grace, walk worthy of God, of his kingdom, and of his glory. Let's pray.